It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Howdy, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Great to be with you. As always, you can live stream us on the Internet. LarryKudlowShow.com. Is that still right? Yeah. LarryKudlowShow.com. Producers say that's still right. You can hear us throughout the country, uh, around the world, throughout the solar system and the Milky Way. If you know what the Milky Way is, you can write us in because I haven't figured that out yet. But we do. Actually, a lot of people hear us on the Internet. We get a lot of live streaming. So it's good for us. And um, lots to talk about, as always. I want to begin... I mean, look, we're going to talk about the jobs number. We're going to talk about the crack up in the stock market. Why Jay Powell's not getting it done on inflation. Joe Biden. What am I reading? Joe Biden's in Ohio yesterday. This guy, God bless him. He's the only president we have, right? So he's reminiscing about the days where he could have lunch with segregationists in the Senate. What a wonderful idea that is. You got the audio? Let's play this. Play this nutty thing. Even back in the old days when we had real segregationists like Eastland and Thurman and all those guys. But at least we end up eating lunch together. Really? Diego, Cracker Jack producer. Thank you, buddy. So I'm just, you know, look, yeah, those, were, those were the days, but they weren't the great days. I mean, those guys wouldn't have lunch with, you know, with blacks, browns. I don't think they'd have lunch with women. The odd thing about it is Biden saying this, and he's calling uh, conservatives, Trump people, MAGA people, the most extreme people in the world, and he then just launches in some reminiscence about having lunch with segregationists who hate blacks. Really? I don't know. I mean, I just don't know. But I want to go back to Roe v. Wade. I want to revisit some of the issues here. I mean, look, I put my cards on the table. Uh, if you watch us during the week on Fox Business, the name of the show is Cudlow. You'll know I've been talking all week long since that news broke Monday night. I am a strong pro-lifer, uh, protecting the life of the unborn, have been for many, many decades. I also think the draft of Judge Alito, which would push the Roe v. Wade decision out and would would give individual voters in the states and the state legislatures the right to make a determination state by state. I've long thought that that kind of state's rights approach, voter determination approach, was exactly right. Unelected judges shouldn't be making these key decisions. I want to add, you go back to Roe v. Wade, 1973, More than 63 million children were killed. Can you imagine that? 63 million children were killed by abortions. Now, I will say this, too. I offer this uh, with all great respect to those people who may be listening who do not agree with me. I appreciate that. I also don't dismiss. Look, I I understand women who, who, for health reasons, want to have an abortion, the idea of women's choice, a right to choose. I understand that, but I always add to, to that conversation that who defends the unborn child and their right to live? 
I mean, that's always been the issue to me. This God's creation. I mean, you get a heartbeat, I don't know, inside six weeks nowadays. And uh, with all the science and technology, you know that there is a living child in the womb. I mean, most countries around the world, in fact, we looked at this on the, on the Kudlow Show on Fox Business. Uh, we looked at this uh, throughout Europe, I think something like, all but two European countries restrict abortions to the first trimester, which essentially is what this Mississippi Dodd case is all about, Dobbs case, all about first semester. I mean, whether it's 12 weeks or 13 weeks or 14 weeks, that's pretty much the limit. Uh, Late-term abortion, to me, is a hideous thing, an absolute hideous, hideous thing. Uh, We played the debate... um, the last debate in 2016 between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump where they argued over this, and she defended late-term abortion, so-called partial birth abortion, and um, then-candidate Trump said no. He completely opposed to it, and he said he would appoint judges to the Supreme Court who were opposed to it. He made good on his promise to this day. I mean, I just support that completely. I think Donald Trump was the most significant pro-life president we've ever had. I mean, my friend George W. Bush was a pro-life president also and appointed conservative judges, but I just put my cards on the table so you know where I'm coming from. I'm just a strong supporter of the unborn. That's all. And um, I'm not a sociologist. I haven't really looked inside the numbers, but of those 63 uh, million, some odd million people, children, sorry, children, uh, who lost their lives to abortion, uh, I'm going to guess, and I think it's an educated guess, that the biggest share of that were minorities, African Americans particularly. I'm going to guess and if I'm wrong, I apologize. I'm gonna we're gonna try to look into that as the show goes on. Uh, one of the managers here mentioned that to me, but I, I think that's probably a true fact. Maybe we can scare up some numbers on that. But the blacks are the ones who get hurt the most. That's my impression. But what is outrageous about this story as it unfolds is one thing the failure of the Biden administration, as expressed by Madam Saki, the soon-to-be-departing press secretary. It's going MSNBC. That's perfect. But from the president on down, there's no outrage. There's no condemnation of the leak, which is so corrupting and damaging to the reputation, the institutional reputation and regard for the Supreme Court, which is still one of our most respected institutions. I believe the uh, military and the Supreme Court are right up there in the top several most respected institutions in American life at a time when, as most folks know, there isn't a lot of respect for anything in Washington, D.C., which is probably deserved. Trump called it the swamp. I worked in the swamp twice, once for Reagan, once for Trump. 
not good. But point is, here we have no condemnation of the leak itself. And to me, that's just absolutely extraordinary. Now, Chief Justice John Roberts, whom I know, by the way, I mean, I'm not in his inner circle, but I knew John. We both worked for Reagan a long, long time ago. Um, he was very kind to me when I first went to Washington in the Trump Trump years. He came up, spoke to me at a dinner. Anyway, he called Trump, uh, Chief Justice John Roberts called the leak of Justice Samuel Alito's opinion absolutely appalling. He's right. And then he said, if the person behind that leak thinks it's going to affect the jurist's work, then that's just foolish. Good for John Roberts. Strong statement. I saw in the paper this morning, Clarence Thomas said the same thing. It's not going to change anybody's mind. So if some liberal left twit, to use Ted Cruz's, Senator Cruz's phrase, thinks that this was a clever idea, guess again. It will not change their mind. Now, these drafts, can go through iterations, wording can change. And I suppose um, intellectually a justice can change his or her mind along the way. I mean, I believe the draft first was written back in February. I don't know why they chose to leak it uh, all of a sudden in early May. I guess the decision will come out in June uh, or sometime in the early part of the summer. But it's not going to work. And it probably will stiffen the backs of conservative jurors who have um, signed on to the Alito draft opinion. But again, it is appalling that from Saki, I mean, Biden, no one has, none of this, they don't care about this. All they care about is Roe v. Wade. They have no interest in preserving the Supreme Court and its reputation. I mean, just imagine if if President Trump or some senior officials in our administration had leaked a big, important, controversial memo on almost any subject. I mean, the, the lefties would have gone crazy if we had leaked something that you know might have impacted a big issue of the day, a big political. They'd have gone nuts. They want to impeach him. You know, well, they did try to impeach him. Of course, the leaks are on the other side. The leaks were at Trump, not by Trump. But you get what I'm saying whether it's phony Russian collusion or GPS or any of these other silly things. And then one more thing I want to say before the break. and We're going to talk about this. Andrew McCarthy, former prosecutor, great friend, National Review contributor, Fox contributor. Um, uh, this crazy group, Ruth Sent Us, which has published the home addresses of the justices who signed on to the Alito draft memo. Amy Coney Barrett, of course, Alito, Brett Kavanaugh, Clarence Thomas, Neil Gorsuch. I mean, this this group, first of all, the irony is that they're talking about Ruth, Ruth, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. She was one of the earliest people before she was a justice who questioned the correctness, the viability of Roe v. Wade. She said it was a lousy decision, lacked constitutional weight. And boy, she was right. And she said, by the way, it's not going to settle the law. She and and uh, um, uh, Scalise, uh, um, they both said that this would not settle the issue. 
That's an important point that's gotten lost here. But anyway, they call themselves Ruth Sent Us. And, of course, this is going to lead to violence. If they go and march on the homes, it will not be, it will not be peaceful, which is what Saki is saying. Oh, it's okay because there's a lot of passion and it will be peaceful demonstrations. No, it won't. Go back two summers ago when Black Lives Matter allegedly had peaceful demonstrations about that judge. I think he was a judge in St. Louis during those race riots, which turned violent. People attacked his house. And, of course, it happened in all the cities, St. Louis, Minneapolis, Portland, Seattle, New York, you name it. These BLM, you know, they're not peaceful. Antifa, they're not peaceful. They may label themselves peaceful. People on the far left who want to defund the police, they want to defund the Supreme Court. They want to attack the court. They want to try to intimidate the court. You can't do that. And it is just astonishing. Joe Biden should be ashamed of himself for not giving the justices major new additional protection. He should be ashamed of himself for not taking this seriously. He should be ashamed of himself for not, he has yet to condemn the leak. He has yet to say anything. This is just far left craziness. And no one's going to stand for it. No one's going to stand for it. 63 million abortions later. We have to worry about the health of the child, the life of the child. We, look, we got to worry about the life of these Supreme Court judges. We, we have to worry about the lives of anybody who protests in this country. We want peaceful demonstrations. It is up to the president to set the tone, the moral tone, and to enforce the laws. And by the way, it turns out, I think I read something yesterday, that anybody who demonstrates against a judge, a federal judge, I think this is right, is breaking the law. So there is nothing law-abiding and peaceful about this. All right, I got to take a break. And we're going to come back and talk some more about this. I want to get to the jobs issue later on. And it's a mixed bag. The stock market, of course, down six straight weeks in a row. We still have a big inflation problem. Jay Powell, the Fed chairman, I don't, I don't think he should be confirmed. He's done a terrible job as Fed chairman. Anyway, we'll take a break. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. Please stick around. Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. Great pleasure to be with you. Um, <clears throat> I just want to repeat here in the intro, where is the left's outrage over the Supreme Court leak and the threat to the individual justices? And again, uh, Madam Saki refuses to condemn the leak of the Supreme Court draft opinion. I'm just reading this is from the Washington Times headline. I've been covering this on the Fox Business Show every night this week. By the way, it's 4 to 5 p.m. I should say this, 4 to 5 p.m. every night. If you can't can't pick us up at 4, you can get your favorite 9-year-old who will show you how to DVR the show. 9-year-olds are much better at that than us older folk of a certain age. But really, this is such a serious issue. I mean, how can they not be? I mean, Joe Biden should have been out there. Instead of being in Ohio and reminiscing, how wonderful it was to have lunch in the Senate 40 years ago with racist, segregationist U.S. senators, which is what he was reminiscing about, which to me is insane. I mean, they purport to be, you know, 
We're all about equity and justice in the Biden administration. Here he is talking about James Eastland. But whatever. Instead of that, he should be protecting his own Supreme Court justices. Not stacking the court. By the way, you know, Schumer and Pelosi think they're going to have votes that are going to pass legislation to codify Roe v. Wade. They're not because they're not going to get through the filibuster because the Democratic Party, at least the, the, the Democratic Party in the Senate, is not going to let it happen. Mansion, cinema, but there's several others. They will not permit that. But the point is, it is the, our Supreme Court. It's the United States Supreme Court. It is as much Biden's Supreme Court as any other president. And by law, by law, they must be protected. And again, I see some headlines on TV this morning. Uh, Justice Thomas, Clarence Thomas, is saying we will not be bullied. Good for him. That's basically what uh, Chief Justice John Roberts said yesterday in a speech, uh, I believe, down in Atlanta, Georgia, or someplace down in Georgia. But this group, about whatever they call themselves, what are they? What's the name? crazy group. Ruth sent us. Ruth Bader Ginsburg sent us. Ruth Bader Ginsburg was, first of all, thought Roe v. Wade's decision was a lousy decision. But this will lead to violence, just like Black Lives Matter and Antifa led to violence in all the cities two summers ago and last summer. Last summer, and the Bidens always looked the other way. They they criticized Trump and MAGA followers for being extremists. They Biden's looked the other way. They want to defund the police. Then they deny they want to defund the police. Here, I'll just say, look, it looks to me the failure to provide extra security. I mean, a lot of extra security. It's like defunding the court, okay? Why aren't you defending the Supreme Court? There'll come a time when Democrats can put somebody else on the Supreme Court, right? They just got this woman through. Jackson, I believe her name was. Defend all these justices. Not on the basis of the cases that you like or don't like, but on the basis that they are justices of the Supreme Court. And by law, federal judges are protected. And Biden and his people should be ashamed of themselves for not doing this. We'll talk some more. We have Congressman Steve Scalise. He is the House Republican whip, number two man. We'll talk some more about this in just a few moments, along with the jobs report and the inflation problem. I'm Cudlow. We'll be right back. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. Uh, welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. Great pleasure to be with you and very, very great pleasure to welcome back to the show Congressman Steve Scalise, Republican from Louisiana. He's the House GOP, GOP whip. He will. What happens, Steve Scalise, when the cavalry comes and you take over? What does you become the majority leader? How does that work? <laughs> well, I uh, good. First, good to be with you, Larry. And uh, absolutely, you know, we'll 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 worry about all those titles later. But uh, but yeah, rather than retire the title whip, it's been a lot of fun. But uh, there's bigger things that we need to focus on next year. And I think you're going to see a lot of people coming out across the country, and and not just Republicans. I mean, independents and there's a lot of Democrats that are done with all this big government socialism. And so you're going to see a a red wave with with candidates that. I think you're going to be really exciting people that you're going to want to support all across the country. Well, the tide is turning, and I, I just, again, want to thank you for giving all of us your time this morning on radio. You know, Steve, I, I just I want to go back. Uh, I, I'm obliged 
to go back to the Roe v. Wade issue, um, as I've said on the show, I'm, I'm a pro-life guy, protect the life of the unborn. But here's the thing. What is infuriating me more and more is how Madam Saki keeps saying, and there hasn't been a single disagreement from Biden that I know of, there is no outrage over the leak. There are no extra protections for the justices. Uh, this group has now published the addresses of the justices, inviting what I think is not going to be a peaceful demonstration, but will be a violent demonstration, just like there were last summer and the summer before. I mean, where's Biden? Biden's in Ohio, Steve Scalise, talking about reminiscing how wonderful it was uh, to have lunch with segregationist senators 40 years ago, 50 years ago. But where's the where's his protection for our Supreme Court justices right now? That's part that's um, bothering me enormously. Yeah, Larry, it bothers me, too. And, and frankly, there should have been immediate repudiation of the leak. You know, what was interesting is within maybe an hour of the leak, you saw Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer not repudiating the leak, but going after the court on what could be this ruling. Mm. And again, the ruling's not out. It's not like it's definitive yet, but they it's almost like they, they maybe had an advance no notice of it or something. It's odd. Oh. I mean, uh, they didn't they didn't repudiate the leak. And look, you've had Chuck Schumer making very public comments a while back mentioning Gorsuch and Kavanaugh by name, saying, you know, you know, there's we're gonna it's it was very inflammatory language and uh, I, I wish the president would have said, look, the leak shouldn't have happened. It's unprecedented. It never happened before. But also uh, encourage protection for these justices as well. And frankly, this is where John Roberts needs to take control of the situation, not just investigating the leak, which needs to happen. They need to release the, the ruling. Mm. And why, why not? I mean, this has been floating around for months now, according to all of the reports. And, you know, don't don't put anybody at risk. Let's let's get that out there. But it shows you how radical the other side is that, you know, they're already calling for abortion on demand paid for by taxpayers. Uh, When you contrast what this ruling would do, the ruling would allow elected leaders to make decisions on abortion policy, both at the state level and at the federal level, where it would be debated in public again, like it used to be before Roe v. Wade. And and I think, uh, number one, the science has advanced dramatically since Roe v. Wade. You didn't have the ability for ultrasound uh, to see a, a baby in the womb, for example, back in the, during the Roe v. Wade ruling. Today, you have so much more science and knowledge. And you have states that are already, uh, already have laws on the books, like New York, where a baby can be killed alive after it's born alive outside the womb. Mm. They can still kill the baby and call it abortion. That, that's murder. In most states, in New York, it's legal. And, and that's the position before and after this ruling is released. And so people, I think, are going to see that uh, it's going to just open up a new debate with a lot more knowledge and science that wasn't available pre-Roe to protect life. You know, we took a look at it on the on the Fox Business Show, Steve Scalise. Actually, you go throughout Europe. This is, is interesting to me. Uh, something like, I don't know, 37 out of 39 European countries the way they they regulated abortions um, to the first trimester, after the first trimester, in nearly all cases, uh, Europe um, would not permit an abortion. I mean, the idea of a third trimester, as you say, late uh, late term, that's just off the chart. The only people that do that are like North Korea and China. They are the only people that allow 
uh, third trimester abortions or so-called partial birth abortions? Yeah, it's an important point, Larry, because the, the extreme position in the world is America's position. If you look at the pro-abortion laws here, uh, less than a handful of countries in the world have as extreme of a pro-abortion position in law as us. And, you know, the Democrats think that this is something that's going to be a, a political issue that they can win on. They, they're misrepresenting and misreading the polling. Most Americans want more limits on abortion. And, and I'll tell you, and I've seen this, uh, the idea that you can kill a baby alive outside the womb, mm. uh, people that are pro-choice think that's barbaric and mm. murderous. And yet it's legal in states like New York. So, you know, the, this is going to be, I think, an additional uh, additional focus for people to know that, you know, let's go have this debate and uh, but let's get this ruling out and, and, and go find who else, whoever did the, the leaking. And, uh, you know, if they're an attorney, a law clerk, they should be disbarred for life. And I, th- I just would like to see President Biden uh, just come out and provide extraordinary protection. What's so hard about that? Whether it's Secret Service. Now, there was some talk about federal marshals, but I haven't seen anything specific. Maybe you know something. I mean, I don't know that it has to be the National Guard. Maybe it does. I'm just saying not only are they not speaking about the corruption of the leak, but they are not speaking about any help to protect the justices during this time after this group released their home addresses. I mean, I just find this, Steve Scalise, incredible. I mean, they're always blaming Trump and MAGA and all the, we're the, we're the all extreme crazy people. Well, how about the crazy people on the left? How about this whole story on the left? No, and it's clear that he will not stand up, President Biden will not stand up for the most radical elements of their party. It's been the case all along, I mean, day one, the executive orders he signed to undermine our economy and our border security were all rooted in appealing to the most radical elements. And it just keeps going on. And, you know, and again, to not have the understanding that just it gives the moral equivalency of, of speaking out against the leak and for the safety of the Supreme Court justices, regardless of the outcome of the decision. And, and this was clearly an attempt to to try to change a decision that's being made by the United States Supreme Court. And I remember when he was a candidate, he said, you know, I'm going to represent all people in America, whether they voted for me or not. Where, where's that Joe Biden? Yep. You know, and those are the things I think people are disappointed in and, and they're looking for in days like today. Just one more thing on this, Steve Scalise. Um, we did a little bit of homework here, one of the producers. Um, disproportionately, the leading consumer of the abortionist services is the African-American female. Listen to these numbers. According to the 2011 abortion surveillance report issued by the Center for Disease Control, black women make up 14% of the childbearing population, yet obtained 36.2% of reported abortions. Black women have the highest abortion ratio in the country, with 474 abortions per 1,000 live births. Percentages at these levels illustrate that more than 19 million black babies have been aborted since 1973. It is the blacks who get disproportionately hurt by these unrestricted abortion policies. This, too, from a Democratic Party that claims to speak for African Americans and 
defend their interests and so forth. It's almost like the crime in the cities, Steve Scalise. It is the blacks who are disproportionately hurt by the lack of police support and police funding. It's the blacks who get disproportionately hurt on this um, abortion issue. Same story. No, so true. It's so true. And, you know, and again, I think you're going to see a heightened debate about the value of life. And, mm. you know, you, you saw it with the defund police movement and, and quickly uh, people in all communities, but especially those hardest hit by crimes, stood up against defunding the police because they realized uh, that that it's going to hurt them the most. And I think with, you know, with abortion, you know, you're going to see an increased debate in the country. And this debate's been going on, but you know, you go to the March for Life, for example, mm. one, of the, one of the most peaceful protests you could ever see. And an overwhelming number of people is the March for Life every year, usually in, you know, like January, early February, where you have hundreds of thousands of young people come to Washington to promote life and to stand up for life. And, you know, we, we talked about it at the last March for Life that, you know, let's pray this is the last March for Life that happens while Roe v. Wade is still law. And, and there's been a lot of praying and a lot of peaceful marching. But it's young people primarily that participate in that. So I think you're seeing a, a whole new generation where the first picture they saw themselves was not maybe a couple of hours outside their mother's womb, but it was through an ultrasound picture mm. in their mother's womb. Mm. And again, that science didn't exist pre-Roe. And so I think you're seeing more and more people recognize the value of life and why it's important to, to have this debate and to, to win, win this battle. Uh, we're talking to Congressman Steve Scalise of Louisiana. He is the number two Republican in the House. Steve, can we take a quick break and bring you back and talk about why inflation in the economy is really going to be a bigger issue than Roe v. Wade, uh, Democrats notwithstanding? Uh, we'll just be a few minutes, I promise. Uh, we're very grateful to have you. Folks, I'm Larry Kudlow. We'll be right back with Mr. Ske- Steve Scalise after this brief word. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're talking with Congressman Steve Scalise of Louisiana. He is the House Republican whip. Uh, Steve, we got a jobs report yesterday. It was an okay report. A little under 400,000 jobs with some down revisions. But I want to focus on average hourly earnings, in other words, the wage number. Uh, For the last 12 months, Wages have increased 5.5%. Unfortunately, the consumer price index is up 8.5%. So real wages are falling. And actually, Steve Scalise, if I just focus on non-supervisory production workers, uh, the salt of the earth, the hard hats, the blue collars, their wages are up 6.4%, which is a good healthy number. But unfortunately, it's two percentage points less than the inflation rate. So real wages are falling, and I see this. I don't know. Democrats may think the revolt against Roe v. Wade is going to carry them to victory in November. I doubt it. What do you think? Well, clearly, inflation continues to be the driving concern because it's hitting every single family, but it hits low-income families the most. And As you point out, even if you see some increases in wages, it's well overshadowed by the increase in inflation. You're paying a lot more for everything. You go to the grocery store, it's 20% higher or more. If you go to the gas station, that's the most, probably the most obvious example of where President Biden's policies are really hurting low- and middle-income families. It's at the gas pump because he shut down American energy production. We still need energy, but we're being forced to get it from cartels and 
thugs like Putin, and it costs a lot more, 50%, 75% more to fill your car. And so these are the things that people are the most angry about. You know, the border crisis that was created by Joe Biden is another big factor you see all across the country. It's not just border states. You know, look, the fentanyl coming across, made in China, brought across our southern border because Joe Biden opened it up. We had more deaths last year amongst young people by fentanyl overdoses. Over 100,000 of our young people were killed last year. And it's because Joe Biden opened the border and he won't do anything about it. This is what's angering people all across the country. And so these are all issues that are going to be, I think, the most most important things people are talking about and voting on on November 8th. You know, um, it's a factoid. Uh, roughly 75 percent of the goods transported inside the United States is transported by trucks, truckers, three, three quarters, truckers. So we have uh, record high diesel fuel prices, diesel fuel, which is what they live on, um, could be a, you know $800,000 to fill up your truck. And there's a revolt going on amongst truckers. But this is one of the, again, Steve Scalise, this is one of the byproducts of the jihad against fossil fuels. Diesel fuel prices skyrocketing. And the truckers aren't going to deliver the goods, and then everyone's going to whine that the shelves are empty and blame something called supply chains. It's not that complicated. Why not just get more oil and gas production, bring diesel prices and gasoline prices down, and help the truckers for a change. Yeah, Larry, and look, the voters get this. They they see the president trying to blame it on Putin. And, and of course, gas prices were dramatically higher, over 40% higher before Putin even invaded Ukraine. In fact, because Biden shut down American energy, we were forced to buy oil from Russia. Putin was making $700 million a day pre-invasion of Ukraine, $700 million a day Putin was pocketing by selling his oil to America and Europe instead of America producing our own oil, which is what we were doing under President Trump and exporting it to our friends around the world. And so we don't have to reinvent the wheel to get back to those days. And people get this. They see this. You know, it's not the oil companies. Biden, again, after Putin's uh, thing didn't work, he goes and blames the oil companies. He tried to call Saudi Arabia to produce more oil. They wouldn't even take his phone call. How embarrassing was that? But the bottom line is you don't need to beg any dictator. You don't need to beg an OPEC cartel to produce America's energy because we can produce our own energy. And if you're hiding behind this idea that man's destroying the planet and you don't want to use American oil because of fossil fuels, do you know it emits more carbon to buy energy from foreign countries because we actually do it better? Because these, these folks that are attacking American energy, it's, you know, it's not just American energy, just fill in the blank. They're attacking America, what's great about America. And so the, the, we do it better than anywhere in the world. Name a country that produces energy better. Name a country that produces anything better than us. But by putting all of these unrealistic caps in place, Paris Accords, it just kills America's economy and benefits China's. China's building a new coal plant every single week to make up the difference in manufacturing that we don't do in America much cleaner. We emit five times less carbon to make the same steel they make in China, but Biden's policies are making it harder to make things in America, not just energy, all kind of things, and it costs families more, and people get that. You know, former Energy Secretary Rick Perry, a good friend of yours, good friend of mine, yeah. former Texas governor, of course, 
So, you know, Rick makes the case. All these uh, wonderful greenies and uh, these little uh, Green New Dealers in the Biden administration. So imagine if they took down the restrictions on oil and gas production and drilling and pipelining, which is so important. And we sent massive volumes of LNG exports to China. All right, China, and I'll put in India too. Now imagine that. What that would do, to your point, is that would reduce Chinese coal. That would substitute American liquefied natural gas, which would slash carbon emissions for the globe because China's the worst. Now, if you if you're a you know a card carrying Green New Deal greenie in the Biden administration, I would want that. I would want to reduce carbon emissions by sending LNG to China. But that's not what they want. They want to end all of it and stop the permitting for pipelines and fracking and you name it. I just can't think of anything dumber. Honest it's, to God. The most, it's the most anti-environment policy. <laughs> it all ends up in the same place, Larry. If you burn, If you burn coal in China or you burn natural gas in America – Whatever carbon is emitted ends up in the same place. But with the coal, it emits actually more carbon. So why would you want to make more things in China? Why would you want to shut down American economy, the whole American economy, by going to the Green New Deal where you won't be able to manufacture things here? Everything will cost you more money, but you'll actually be increasing global emissions. And they will not refuse. They hate to refuse it. When people like you, uh, you know, Donald Trump was in the White House, you and uh, Secretary Perry and all of all of these folks that really understand energy policy, when y'all were in the White House, we were reducing carbon emissions in America more than anybody else. You know, Europe's not even – go go to France. France is not even in compliance with the Paris Accords. Right. And yet they want to get us in all of these ridiculous, unrealistic, targeted policies that only hurt America and Europe's economy, and they benefit China. China and India, they're emitting more carbon. They're getting more jobs. Go look at Europe's economy. You know, Boris Yeltsin uh, had, had people marching in the streets because of high energy prices in Europe, and then mm. we're trying to go to that. Why mm. would we want a European high-cost anti-production policy? Again, when you emit less carbon by making it in America, name me the country that does it better. To all these people that hate America across the board, whether it's you know teaching CRT in the classroom or trying to push the Green New Deal. What country does it better? Just name the country that does it better than America. Because you know what, Larry? You know this. Nobody does. So stop beating up America. We should be doing more things in America if you want to save the planet. By the way, you have one of the best experts, your policy man, Francis Brooke. Francis. Who worked on the NEC. He's the smartest guy. He's also fabulous. Was a great college baseball pitcher. (laughs) And threw batting. (laughs) I I think he was throwing batting practice the day that you got shot at. He was. I think he was. It's such a horrible Uh, story. uh, From which you have totally uh, recovered, which is such a God-given miracle, by the way. Well, miracle. God performs miracles. Honestly. uh, Francis is one of those Renaissance guys. You know, he does it all. He's great on policy. He's great on my team. We we, we we took all that knowledge and advice you gave him when he was working with you in the White House, and uh, we're putting it to use to help us go get the house back and then, and then start working to save this country. I have one last question, Steve Scalise. Do you think it's possible that we could not have a $350 billion 
dollar spending bill, the so-called compete with China bill, which is nothing but a Green New Deal, corporate welfare, industrial policy bailout bill. Could we not spend an extra three hundred and fifty billion with an eight and a half percent inflation rate? Is that possible? I'm sure hopeful. I'm sure hopeful that we don't. And, uh, you know, look, all of these massive new spending bills that Joe Biden has done already uh, have driven inflation to a point where people can't afford to, to, to pay for the daily things that they do. They're making those decisions. Do I buy my food for the family or fill up the car to go to work or buy medicine? You know, stop this spending. Get back to the basic fundamentals that make this country great. Stop beating up on what is great about America. They go after the bad guys. You know, there's a lot of bad guys out there. There's bad guys in communities. They want to defund cops and not go after the bad guys. They want to defund America by taking away our ability to, to actually make things in America. And all that does is benefits the bad actors around the world. Let's stop doing that. Right. I think people will get that. Uh, Mr. Steve Scalise of Louisiana, thank you, sir. It's a great, great message. The cavalry is coming. We thank you for your time. Folks, I'm Larry Kudlow. We're going to take a quick break. On the other side of the break, we're going to talk to former prosecutor Andrew McCarthy some more about protecting the Supreme Court justices. And then Steve Forbes of Forbes Media is going to come back later on, too. We're talking about the jobs report and the inflation story. I'm Larry Kudlow. Please stick around. Lots more to do. It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. By the way, you can live stream us on the Internet, LarryKudlowShow.com, all across the country, throughout the world, and the solar system as well. We welcome to the show Andrew McCarthy, former district uh, U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York. Contributing editor, National Review. I think he's a Fox News contributor as well, I'm pretty sure. And his most recent book, Ball of Collusion, The Plot to Rig an Election and Destroy a Presidency. Andy McCarthy, welcome back. Larry, great to be with you. Happy Saturday. And you too. By the way, thank you for coming on the Fox Business Show, Cudlow. And we had fabulous numbers. You're a big draw. You're in fabulous, oh, wait, fabulous yeah, numbers. Yeah, I'm a, I'm, I'm a big hitter. <laughs> That's great stuff. <laughs> uh, Andy, let me – I've been pursuing this issue um, that Biden should be out there protecting the Supreme Court justices now that this crazy group has revealed their addresses. And this will lead to no good. Uh, Madam Saki says they're not concerned, you know – Oh, that people it's going to be nonviolent protests. People are passionate. They're not concerned about the leak. They're not concerned about now that these addresses are out there and there are going to be protests. And I guess one question I had that you might know, uh, is it the U.S. Marshal Service that protects the Supreme Court justices or other or other judge federal judges? Have they done anything extra to increase protection? And somebody told me last question, Andy. Somebody told me that actually it's um, against the law to um, protest at their homes or some such thing. Maybe you can clear that up for us. So, Larry, the Supreme Court has its own police force for purposes of security at their facility, uh, the Supreme Court courthouse, as well as the security of the justices. And they, they're the ones who have actually taken over uh, 
the leak investigation, which is one of the reasons I don't have a lot of hope for it, because I don't, I, you know, they're they're very good at what they do in terms of security, but they really don't do criminal investigations. Mm. Um, generally, the U.S. Marshals do have uh, jurisdiction over security of the courthouses, but because the judiciary is a separate branch from the executive, obviously the court has to have its own facilities as as well. And I don't begrudge them their facilities. It's just criminal investigation isn't what they do. And just like a a sort of a very basic thing, one of the first things forensically you would want to do in an investigation like this is figure out what printer the hard copy of this opinion came off, the Mm. draft opinion. Uh, That's the kind of thing you really need help from the FBI's lab from. You know, the Supreme Court guys don't have the capacity to do that kind of forensic education. So uh, investigation. So like for a million good reasons, I think they need help from the Justice Department. And I do agree with you that, you know, to my mind, even worse than the leak. And I wouldn't have thought when the leak happened that I'd be talking by the end of the week of something worse than the leak happening to the Supreme Court. But you're absolutely right that the government has to speak as one voice, uh, the executive branch, as well as the Congress, that the most important thing here is the Supreme Court as an institution and the safety of the justices. That That's like paramount. And the thought that they are subordinating that to something that isn't even an opinion yet, it's not even a ruling of the court, it's a draft. Uh, and they are uh, you know, trying to make hay with that, that politically at the expense of the safety of the justices and the, and the court's viability as an institution is just stunning to me. I just, it's awful. And the final thing, the last thing you asked me, um, it's obstruction of justice to do corrupt things, to try to, (laughs) to um, intimidate or influence the tribunal. And what's obviously, what obviously this is all about is trying to intimidate the justices into changing their opinion. So to me, this is a classic obstruction of justice. And I think everything that they do in the way of trying to influence the justices is exactly that. Well, Andy McCarthy, now that this crazy group Ruth sent us has published the home addresses of Roberts, but also Amy Coney Barrett, Alito, Kavanaugh, Clarence Thomas, Neil Gorsuch. um, I mean, to me, this is like unleashing a war against the court. And when when Saki was asked about this, she didn't have anything to say. She had no opposition to it. She says, well, this is a passionate issue, blah, blah, blah. Um, you know, we saw last summer and the, two summers ago, you know, groups uh, coming after. I remember that I believe he was a judge in, outside of St. Louis. They walked on his property. It turned violent. And I'm waiting. Why hasn't the White House announced special security measures for the Supreme Court justices. They absolutely should. You know, Larry, we talk all the time in connection with the Capitol riot about the people who assaulted police and and broke into the building and broke windows and all that stuff. And I don't think any of us thinks that that those people shouldn't be prosecuted. But they scorched the earth to prosecute hundreds of people who didn't do anything other than walk through the grounds. And nobody dared, when they indicted all those people, nobody dared come out and say, well, you know, there was a lot of passion that day. There was a lot of passion. People had very passionate feelings. The the reaction of the Biden White House was, we're going to prosecute every single one of these people that we can identify. 
And now the same people are signaling to the crazy left that it's perfectly fine to go to the home of Supreme Court justices and intimidate them over again a draft opinion from three months ago that isn't even a ruling of the court. Who should be sent in to protect? The, the, the marshals the should mar- be protecting uh, – the local police should be protecting this, the homes of the Supreme Court justices. But the most important thing here, Larry, would be the White House has to come out and set the tenor. You know, there's a lot of criticism, and I thought it was rightful, of, of President Trump for not using the influence he might have had with the people who were rioting at the Capitol. Where is the administration now? They're fomenting this. They're not, they're not trying to strike a chord where you say, you know, look, uh, we can disagree with the ruling if that day ever comes, if the ruling gets issued as a ruling. But the Supreme Court justices are off limits. But, you know, the Supreme Court, people shouldn't be demonstrating outside the Supreme Court. Forget about the homes of the justices. And this is exactly why Roe is such terrible law. I mean, you know, the idea is we're supposed to insulate the Supreme Court from political pressure and let them decide cases along the lines of the law. And if something isn't in the Constitution, then it just goes back to the state legislatures and they can regulate abortion. Mm-hmm. They can allow it. And, you know, with restrictions that most people actually support in this country, Um But, you know, we're in a situation here where there's a real danger to the lives of these justices. And instead of doing everything they can to tamp it down, the White House is just fanning the flames. Um, Last one, uh, Andrew McCarthy. I want to play you a very quick tape from the third presidential debate in 2016 between Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton uh, on the subject of late term abortions. Let's listen to this. Trump, your reaction, and particularly on this issue of late-term partial birth Well, I think it's terrible. Uh, If you go with what Hillary is saying, in the ninth month, you can take the baby and rip the baby out of the womb of the mother just prior to the birth of the baby. Now, you can say that that's okay, and Hillary can say that that's okay, but it's not okay with me. Because based on what she's saying and based on where she's going and where she's been, You can take the baby and rip the baby out of the womb in the ninth month on the final day. And that's not acceptable. You know, I I just play it. I don't want to put you on the spot, but we're one of the few countries, along with North Korea and China, Andy McCarthy, that permits this kind of late term abortion. We're one of the few left. It's not good. It can't be good. It's not good, Larry. And, you know, part of the reason that that's the case is there's not enough people who do what President Trump did in that clip. You know, a lot of times we talk around this. We have euphemisms, the whole – the way we talk about this, you know, I'm pro-choice. It's about choice. and What, what, what this is about is what Donald Trump described in that clip, and not enough people are willing to hold up the mirror to, to the country about what a horror this is, what, not just what a moral travesty it is, but what a physical horror it is. Mm. And I think maybe if we were more courageous in talking about it, we wouldn't be in that uh, you know, disgraceful rung of countries that allow this right up to the moment of birth. 100%. God bless you.
Andrew McCarthy, former district U.S. attorney and National Review and Fox News. Can't thank you enough, Andy. We'll talk soon. Folks, I'm Larry Kudlow. On the other side of the break, we're going to go back to the inflation question with Professor Steve Hankey of Johns Hopkins. I'm Kudlow. Please stick around. Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. I want to turn to the inflation problem. And it is still a big problem. Despite, really despite Jay Powell's, Fed Chairman Jay Powell's attempts to kind of whitewash it this past week. I mean, he really sort of blaming it on Putin and supply shortages and, you know, you know, everything but the Fed. And so I bring in my friend Steve Hankey, professor of economics at Johns Hopkins University, an old friend. So, Steve, welcome. I'm looking at your piece. The Fed looks for inflation in all the wrong places from the National Review. It's, that's a play on, right? You're looking for love in all the wrong places. They're looking for inflation in all the wrong places. It's pretty clever. I don't think you wrote the header. You, you wrote the article. They write the header. I, I, no. They, <laughs> they have given me the right to write my own header, Larry. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's pretty good, actually. It's very unusual. And, you know, and you say – Economists quoted in the Wall Street Journal continue to blame non-monetary factors. The war in Ukraine, relative prices elsewhere in the economy is the primary cause of inflation. Yes. So you wouldn't have – I mean price increases are widespread across the board every place. You wouldn't have you know, supply, supply chain. If chip prices go up, that doesn't mean the entire price index has to go up. That can only occur if there's too much money chasing too few goods. I think you would agree. So tell us about the threat. Are we making any headway on it or not? Well, we're we're not. Let me make a couple of points be, that you're you're getting very close to the bullseye as usual. Uh, this, this this look. If if you look at the Chairman Paul trying to you know cover his tracks and so forth, this is an old game with the White House and the Fed trying to cover their tracks. And as you remember, many years ago, when you were a student at the University of Rochester, one of your professors was a famous Carl Bruner, one of the greatest monetary economists in history. Yep. And and Bruner gave a speech. He was remember not not only a famous professor of economics, but he was also the the co-director of the Shadow Open Market Committee with Alan Meltzer, another great economist. And he gave uh, Bruner gave a speech in Caracas in February of 1982, in which he laid out why the Fed had a, a big disinformation machine to confuse the public about inflation. Whenever inflation rose its ugly head, as Bruner and and you and I know, it's all because the money pump gets turned on, mm-hmm. and and there's ex. Excess money being created, as you said, too too much money chasing too few goods. So the result of that, which you probably don't know, Larry, is that Bruner actually was, after that speech, prohibited from entering Federal Reserve headquarters in Washington, (laughs) D.C. The the security guards literally had orders. I didn't know that. Carl Brunner, nice old Carl Brunner. My goodness. That's pathetic. 
So at any rate, that that is one aspect of this looking in all the wrong places with all these excuses and everything else. The second thing, Larry, is kind of a theoretical thing, and that is the the models that young people learn now are these post-Keynesian macroeconomic models, and those models don't include money. So they don't include the money pump. The, the, the third factor that is slightly related to the first factor of covering their tracks is a, is a political bias in the Federal Reserve System. The Fed has 785 economists employed in the whole system. None of them got this thing right, Larry. None of them anticipated any of this. 416 of them are employed in Washington at headquarters. Out of those, the ratio of Democrats to Republicans is 48.5 to 1. Huh. So, so the Democrats completely dominate the, the scene. Now you say, well, what, you know, you're getting into conspiracy theory, Hanky. No, I'm not, because we all know that the one of the great enemies of and threats to the Democrats is always Milton Friedman, and Milton Friedman is synonymous with monetarism. So M equals M. Monetarism equals Milton Friedman. <laughs> And and they the the Dems want to keep Milton and any of his ideas buried and buried very deep. So this is a, this is one reason why Chairman Paul has literally testified before Conver- Congress in February of last year in front of Senator Kennedy from Louisiana. He he articulated very clearly the chairman did that we must unlearn monetarism. Right. That, that, that the money supply does not have any effect on economic activity, and, and it's something that the Fed doesn't even look at. So that's the in nub, the nub of what's going on. Now, to disprove this, by the way, that we're, that these all these factors, the commodity prices and gas prices are causing inflation, the wage growth and tight labor markets are causing it, Putin and Russia are causing that supply chain bottlenecks and all this other stuff. Just consider the following. And and the, quickly, the inflation quickly, rate in quickly. the United States is 8.5%. The inflation rate in Europe is 7.4. Canada at 6.7. UK at 7. Hmm. But but in Japan, which has had all these same problems that we've had, the inflation rate is 1.2 percent. China has had all these problems, maybe even more problems than we've had, and it, the inflation is 1.5 percent. Switzerland has had all these problems, supply chain, and you name it, oil prices, Putin, and all the rest of it. It's 2.4 percent. So you ask why, and and why? All you have to do is look at the money supply growth numbers. The money pump has not been on full speed. And- in Japan, China, and Switzerland, and, and, and it has been in every place else. All right. So, so basically, though, uh, you're saying that the money supply, the money pump, as you put it, that's a, I like that word, is still pumping, right? They've not stopped it, and therefore, there's really no reason to think inflation's coming down. Is that, that's, that's the bottom line. Number, I've that, just got two that, minutes. No, no, it, it, it's not quite the bottom line. It, it is very important, Larry. 
let, let's assume they bring the pump down today and, and, and they're able to do that immediately. Then what happens? We, we have a lot of monetary overhang or excess money in the monetary bathtub mm. that they've pumped in there that will keep coming out. So even if they are able to get it down to the right level, we will have inflation of 6% or more for the next two years yep. because of all this excess that's, that's in the system. And to give you an indication of what the excess is, Larry, the, the banks are engaged in what they call reverse repos. Yeah. It's a technical thing, but this is they're loaning money to the Fed. They I, have so much liquidity. I got to go. $1.8 trillion, right. 20% of the Fed's assets. My buddy, my buddy Steve Hanke. No, no, it's a good point. Excess money reigns, and we're going to have an inflation problem for the next couple of years. I'm Cudlow. We're going to talk to Steve Forbes about inflation right after this. Please stick around. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're going to talk to Steve Forbes, chairman and editor-in-chief of Forbes Media, and his new book, Inflation, What It Is, Why It's Bad, and How to Fix It, is out. It's a great book. I read it. And, Steve, it's great to have you. I got, you know, I want to talk to you about inflation and jobs, but I just got to read you this. I just saw this on the Fox Business website. They seized Putin's yacht, his $700 million super yacht. I have been ragging on this for weeks on the air. Uh, Putin's alleged $700 million super yacht yacht seized in Italy. Italians, I love this. They scrambled to investigate the. They say it's nearly 460-foot super yacht known as, I I can never pronounce this word, Sheherazi, Sheherazadi. I know it's a biblical word. Anyway, dry docked in the Tuscan port of Marina del Carrara. Concerns mounted. The Kremlin-linked vessel was set out to Italian waters shortly. They nailed it. I wanted the U.S. to nail it in conjunction with it, but I don't care. They took his yacht. I love this. <laughs> well, that's right. And uh, what, what they should do is uh, uh, put it up for auction and use the proceeds to provide arms to Ukraine. Yes. And uh, – and, uh, give Ukraine all the weapons it needs to win that war. We're still not doing it, shockingly, uh, which obviously has an effect on the economy. And uh, Ukraine now, from their experience of fighting the Russians since 2014 in eastern Ukraine, and the training they received from NATO that nobody uh, knew about, they have one of the two or three best armies in the world today. So give them the means to do the job. Great points all across the board. Important, really important points. So let me ask you this, Steve Forbes. So here's this guy, Putin. He's been president and prime minister, whatever, uh, 30, 40 years. He's a public official. How does he he afford a $700 million super yacht? And I'm going to go back. I sang this on the air a couple of weeks ago of our Fox Business show from the great – uh, Broadway play Fiorello. People of a certain age listening to this will remember Fiorello, where yes. you know they're trying to get rid of the corrupt mayor who also had a yacht, and they launch into this famous song. Um, 
you know, how did you afford this? Well, I gave up smoking for a couple of months and I put my pennies into a little tin, little tin cup. <laughs> and so Putin put into a little t- and it's a famous song. You know, if I had known this was coming out, I have the song in my folder at home, the little tin cup. But really, Putin's a look. Well, that, uh, that, uh, that, that, that is so right. And, uh, and, and you, know, you know, what, what 401k advisor? <laughs> I want to know. The inquiring public wants to know yes. who manages his money. <laughs> well, the point, in all seriousness, the point I kept trying to make, and I wanted Biden and his people to make this point, he is a war criminal, no question about that. But he is also, Steve, a crook, been stealing hundreds of billions of dollars from the Russian working people for decades. He's just a big crook. And I don't know why they well, didn't launch a, that narrative. A, yeah, and it's, it's a criminal enterprise. Right. And uh, and if you don't cooperate, as some of these uh, oligarchs have, uh, sadly have discovered, uh, suddenly you uh, get these strange diseases. You disappear. Your family disappears. It, it's a criminal enterprise. And why we don't hammer that home on Radio Free Europe and Radio Liberty, why we don't hammer that home uh, by our own State Department. And the word will seep through that at the same time they're sending tens of thousands of Russian uh, conscripts who don't know how to fight to early deaths in Ukraine. These guys are still uh, looting the country. Hmm. And that's why the military stinks there Hmm. is because the generals and the defense uh, uh, people were all on the take and infected, rotted the. The army, uh, the non-coms are on the take. I mean, they they loot uh, these towns in Ukraine, and then they've put it in cars they've stolen and sell the stuff in Russia. Mm-hmm. It, it's it's unbelievable. Um, Ryan, I'm going to go to Ryan, my crackerjack producer researcher. Go uh, Google up Fiorello. All right, it's called Little Tin. I think the Little Tin Cup is the name of the song, and we'll play it at some point if you don't find it. During Steve Ford, we'll play it later, but I'll bet you're going to find it. It was kind of like the lead song in in that great Broadway play, which I think was in the early 60s, but I'm not sure. Anyway, Steve yes. Forbes, you're, you're spot on. I mean, so how does it – I wasn't going to ask you about this, but let's talk about Ukraine. How does it look to you right now that – you know, Ukrainians are always doing better than anybody felt, you know, believes possible. How, do, how does this story look to you? Uh, well, the story right now is that uh, I think uh, Putin's recognized, obviously, he's not didn't get that quick victory. And the question now is, is he serious about all this talk about using nukes? Uh, they they have uh, more than any other country in the world, these low grade uh, tactical nukes that are one third of the uh, blasting power of what we dropped in Hiroshima in 1945. And the question is, would he really do a demonstration or even bomb a, a, a city in Ukraine and say, you give me what I want or uh, we're, we're, we're going we're going all the way. And uh, and I think the way I hope right now, Washington is taking that seriously and behind the scenes, credibly saying, here are the consequences if you even get close to that. They also know uh, you have to go through a chain of command to do that kind of thing. Are we contacting Russian officers? Are we making clear you're going to be tried as war criminals if you survive this thing? So I hope they're laying down those markers. And then the question becomes, what does Putin do on Monday when he makes the celebration of the Allied victory, Russian victory against the Nazis in World War II? 
Uh, what What is he going to outline there as a so-called victory? That's why he's so desperate to get that uh, port city of Maripol, because he has nothing else to show for it. And so he's reduced the city to rubble, and he's going to try to make that a great victory. But we have to drive Putin out of Ukraine and uh, make very clear you don't even consider using nukes because uh, the consequences, you not only is your whole economy going to be shut down, your Black Sea is going to be blockaded, all the money is going to be seized, and uh, your ships are going to be sunk. Uh, then we got to credibly make that clear. Don't even go near that because you mm. cross that threshold and other countries are going to be doing it. It's just a disaster, human disaster. Well, agreed <laughs> on all sense. All right, we actually have... This is the Putin 401k song. Go ahead, folks. Your witness, Mr. X, may we ask you a question? It's amazing, is it not? That the city pays you slightly less than 50 bucks a week, yet you purchased a private yacht. I am positive your honor must be joking. Any working man can do what I have done. For a month or two, I simply gave up smoking. And I put my extra pennies one by one into a little tin box, a little tin box that a little tin key unlocks. Oh, it's fabulous. There is nothing unorthodox about a little tin box. All right, kids. That's just great stuff. So there's your 401k management. Uh, it's a it's a very serious subject, but I mean you got to have a little bit of fun on a Saturday morning. Steve Forbes, yeah. no, nobody's as good as you are. Uh, let's take a quick break, Steve, and then we'll come back and talk about inflation and the jobs report. But I do appreciate your analysis. This um, tactical nuclear weapons threat is a very very serious uh, business. You're quite right on that. We're talking to Steve Forbes of Forbes Media. He needs no introduction from me or anybody else. We will come back with Steve Forbes after this brief work. Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're talking to the great Steve Forbes, chairman and editor-in-chief Forbes Media, and really must read his new book, Inflation, What It Is, Why It's Bad, and How to Fix It. Uh, Steve Forbes, what would you make of the jobs numbers yesterday? Uh, And, of course, worker wages, average hourly earnings – uh, I'll, I'll use the one for production workers, up 6.4% last 12 months, which is a good number. But unfortunately, it's two percentage points underneath the inflation rate. So real wages are still falling. But there's a some people on Wall Street are saying a little bit of weakness in the job numbers looks like inflation is coming down. What are you thinking? Uh, well, I think uh, the jobs report was uh, fairly good. But the one thing that uh, – two things raise red flags. One is people are dropping again out of the labor force, especially people who haven't had completed high school education and the like. Mm. What is going on there? The other thing that is a first sign that there may be trouble brewing is the – if you, as you know, Larry, they have two surveys. One gets the publicity, but they also have the household survey. That survey, which usually captures small businesses better, but uh, so their job numbers are all over the map. But over time, they match the number that we get uh, reported each month. That job number actually went down 323,000, which I think shows trouble on the on the small business front, both uh, trying to hire people, 
but also uh, that they're uh, facing real pressures that are going to affect the economy. So overall, good report, but there are red flags there. And on the uh, inflation front, uh, the Federal Reserve is still dragging its feet. You know, we point out there are two kinds of uh, inflation, monetary and non-monetary. This government's making the non-monetary worse. Now they're going after railroads, which is going to raise costs, artificially raise costs. But on the money front, the Fed does have this massive amount of money. Steve Hankey, your previous guest, made reference to it. Mm -hmm. Now over $1.8 trillion is ready to flood the economy. And one thing that's got no publicity is the Federal Reserve raised the rate it pays on bank reserves parked at the Federal Reserve. It's now 0.9%. And uh, so I think they're going to be trying gimmicks to try to prevent a flood of money coming into the economy. But as people run down their cash, uh, interest rates go up. Uh, I think the, you'll see more uh, bank lending, more credit card lending, and that's how you get uh, traditional money creation. And the best battle, the way you battle this, in addition to stop the money printing and start reducing the money supply, is go to a, some sort of gold standard, whether it was the informal one that Greenspan had for part of the 1990s or what we had under Bretton Woods. But uh, we did an article the other day, uh, the, my two co-authors, uh, Nathan Lewis and Elizabeth Ames for Fox, uh, Fox uh, Business uh, Opinion, that you can't even discuss such a, such a thing anymore, even though Greenspan informally used it. It's cancel culture. You can't even bring that up anymore. So the Fed, as you well know, the only way they know how to fight inflation is by slowing the economy. Uh, even though they say they're, the Phillips curve is out the window, they're still practicing it. They got to they got to slow the economy to fight inflation, and that is just the wrong cure. You Make know, the dollar stable again. King dollars, you used to say. No, that's right. <laughs> Listen, go back. Uh, you mentioned Greenspan. You can go back a little further. Uh, Ronald Reagan appointed. Remember, Steve uh, uh, Wayne Angel, Manley Johnson and Robert Heller, three Reagan appointees to the Federal Reserve Board in 1985 and 1986. And those guys generated a discipline. I I think that Wayne Angel was best known for it, but the others, uh, whether you looked at a commodity price rule or Manley Johnson and and the late Bob Heller, uh, Bob Kelleher, I beg your pardon, um, wrote a book about market, uh, market price signals. But basically, you'd be using gold, commodity indexes, yield curve, uh, and the exchange rate. And when they got out of line, like in an inflationary environment, the exchange rate would go down, gold commodities would go up, the yield curve would widen. That was a signal to the Fed to tighten up their balance sheet, which in those days we called the monetary base. It still is the monetary base. Just don't use that phrase. And that's yes, it's amazing. <laughs> but that's really what you're driving at. Is that kind of it, yes? You don't want to yes, because the, I one, the to, one thing the Fed can control is the monetary base. Right. They can't control velocity or anything else. That's right. But they can control the monetary base, and I'm afraid now they still think they can bottle up these excess reserve money they've created by uh, the those reverse repos. In effect, they borrow the money back every night. So they create the money and then they borrow it back. Really smart. And uh, by hiking uh, the interest rate, they pay on reserves to try to keep banks from lending. But it's ultimately not going to work. So get your act together, guys. And uh, whether you do a clean gold standard or a a partial one like we did have in the 80s and uh, part of the 90s, 
Uh, you don't have to de- artificially depress the economy. We have enough trouble without uh, the Federal Reserve uh, pushing us over a cliff. You know, I thought um, listening and watching and reading uh, Jay Powell, Fed Chairman Jay Powell, I mean, I really thought he sounded like Biden because, he's, you know, he's blaming it on Putin, a- a.k.a. the Ukrainian war and um, what he called pandemic, blah, 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 supply shortages. But that stuff, first of all, the, the, the oil price surge started way before Putin because they've, they've run a jihad yes. against fossil fuels and the Green New Deal crazies in the White House. But um, you wouldn't have oil prices rising. These indexes, flawed as they may be, would not all be rising. Some individual prices go up. Some individual prices go down. That's the sub- – the supply shortage point. But you've got – which because you have excess money, you've got all these prices going up. And the – I mean commodities may have topped off briefly, but they're still at a very high level. And on the exchange rate with King Dollar, uh, I mean as Hanky was saying, almost all these other currencies have been inflating almost as badly as we have, not and all that, of them. And that's why the dollar looks strong on the foreign exchange. Change, you know, the right. dollar index is over 100. Right. And uh, that's not because we're doing a great job. It's everyone else is doing a worse job. <laughs> I mean, I'd like to see gold drop a thousand or two thousand bucks. And I'd like to see the commodity indexes drop, you know, 15, 20 percent. That would tell me the Fed has stopped printing excess money. But I'm not seeing that. No. And uh, unfortunately, the Fed is floundering. I like to compare it to uh, what they're doing to what the doctors used to do in days of old when they bleed the patient to cure the patient. Mm. That got rid of the pain and suffering because it got rid of the patient. <laughs> and uh, the, the the Federal Reserve is uh, doing the same thing today. They don't realize if you you know the real core inf- essence of inflation, other than the mon- non-monetary kind, when you shut economies down and you get droughts or stuff like that, is when you reduce the value of your currency. The intrinsic, the base value of your currency, and uh, you lower, you you make your currency weaker. By golly, you're going to have trouble. And what these people don't understand, you can get regulations right, you can get spending right, you can get taxes right, but if the money's not right, you have problems. And these people who say, "Oh, we need two to four percent inflation," name one country in history that achieved mm. great wealth mm. and did great things with unsound money. Mm just doesn't happen, period. Steve Forbes, go back. You were making a point, and I read this briefly, but I haven't really covered it on the on the Fox Business Show. The, 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 uh, Bidens are going after railroads now. That's right. Uh, one, of the, one thing Jimmy Carter, President Jimmy Carter, did right, and Democrats like Ted Kennedy, and mm-hmm. with Republican support, of course, is that in the late 70s and early 80s, they deregulated all the transportation. They deregulated uh, trains, planes, trucks. And as a result, the railroad industry at the time, which was going all, all the companies are going bankrupt, went from uh, insolvency to the greatest freight rail system in the world. The track is up to date. The uh, technology is fantastic. No country comes close to matching it either in Europe, Japan, or China. Now this administration's decided because we have fewer railroads today than we did 40 years ago, they have to create artificial competition by forcing railroads to give money to smaller railroads 
uh, when they uh, carry freight. So, mm. in effect, they're uh, uh, want to sort of sort of income redistribution. Mm. Well, you do that kind of nonsense. What's going to happen to investment? Rails are very very capital intensive, and if you start uh, forcing these companies not to make the investments they need, we're going to go back to where we were in the terrible late 1970s. Mm. So they're going after railroads. As you know, they reinstated uh, the crazy rules that Trump tried to push back. So uh, infrastructure projects yeah. are now going to take longer. Yeah, the NEPA. Do more studies and stuff like that. The NEPA rules. Everything they can do to gum up the economy, they're doing. And now they want to force banks to make loans to low-income communities. Fine to make the loans, but when you have the government involved, you get you get the loans that shouldn't be made. Let's let the economy alone. But they just do the exact opposite. We were talking to Steve Scalise, Republican House leader Steve Scalise, about the diesel fuel, Steve Forbes, and the trucking industry. So diesel fuel is like five and a half, six, six bucks now. And that's killing the trucking industry. The trucking industry is responsible for almost three quarters of the goods shipments inside the U.S., so there's another killer because of the um, because of the Green New Deal and the war against fossil fuels. Yeah, when you look at the requirements refineries have in terms of what they're allowed to refine, not to mention building a new refinery, good luck with that. Even LNG plants, which we would think we would want to put on a fast track to help Europe out vis-a-vis Russian gas, they're dragging their feet on that. The federal leasing, yeah, the courts say they can't block it, but they find other ways to block it through regulation. And uh, and, and railroads too use diesel for crying, you know. So oh, it's, that's it's, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. So uh, it, it hits everything, and uh, so they they're putting up these artificial barriers, and then complaining about the fact that costs go up. The Federal Reserve still. Uh, doesn't realize that uh, they got things semi-right in the late 1980s and part Mm -hmm. of the 1990s, Mm -hmm. not to mention what we did before in the 50s and 60s. Let me just give you one statistic, by the way, on uh, when we had the old Bretton Woods gold standards Mm -hmm. from the late 1940s to uh, around 1969, 1970, the average growth rate of the American economy is 4.2%. Since then, before COVID distortion, let's leave out COVID, it was 2.7. You compound that over 50 years. If we had maintained anywhere near that uh, average historic growth rate, you know, the household uh, income median, which is now, what, 67,000, would be about 100 to $110,000 today. Wouldn't people be happier with thirty, forty thousand dollars $40,000 more income? That's what happens when they fool around with their money. And we have a pauper dollar instead of king dollar. And you know what? So if you if you had king dollar, price stability, minimal taxes, minimal regulations, you could grow the economy at three and a oh, half to four percent in the you long could. run. This People have forgotten. They've given up on that. Thing? No way. Right. We Just, could easily grow four percent. All right. We'll three and a half, four. The great Steve Forbes. Steve, can't thank you enough. And we'll send you a thank copy you. of uh, Fiorello, the little tin box. I'm Larry Kudlow, folks. We're going to take a break. We may play Fiorella Little Tin Box in Putin's honor. Putin lost his yacht, finally. And we're going to look at the stock market. Please stick around. Much more work to do today. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back. 
It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. Please join us during the week, Fox Business. And the show's Kudlow, 4 to 5 p.m. every day. You can join us if you can't make it. You can DVR us. Call up your favorite nine-year-old and show you how to DVR the show. Anyway, we are here to talk about the stock market. Six straight weekly decline. That was off 335 points, but that doesn't really tell you how much fun we had. Up 900, down 1,000. I mean, pretty wild stuff. We had the jobs report, which was okay. Inflation, not okay. Jay Powell and the Fed, not okay. But I'm getting ahead of the story. I don't want to get too far ahead of the story. We've got Michelle Gerard, Managing Director and Co-Head of Global Economics at NatWest Markets, and David Kotak, Chairman and Chief Investment Officer at Cumberland Advisors. David Kotak, it's been quite a while since we've talked. Yes, Larry. I think McKinley was president when we first met. <laughs> you could be right. I was thinking more Grover Cleveland, who happens to be one of my favorite presidents because he kept the dollar pegged to gold. <laughs> it's, uh, but Michelle is too, way too young to remember all that stuff. But. No, but David, it's so nice to speak to you. It's been a while for us, too. So great to be on with you today. All right. So, uh, Michelle. Yeah. Yes, thanks so much. It's like a reunion of many years. And yes. here we are, like Jack Benny, we're only 39 years old. <laughs> yes, there you sorry. go. So, Michelle, um, you're going to be nicer because you're a much nicer person than I am, particularly when it comes to the Fed. But I'm just going to say that I was un- underwhelmed by Jay Powell. I thought he he's – they're back to his their old tricks. I mean, Steve Hankey said it earlier on the show. Steve Forbes mentioned it. You know, everyone's to blame for the inflation but the Fed, right? (laughs) That's the deal. Putin, the Ukrainian war, COVID, the woman on the moon, everybody's to blame but the Fed. So I want to get your Fed take. Are you convinced now the Fed is on top of it? And I'm getting a lot of whispers, Wall Street whispers, that we've seen the worst of inflation and it's going to come back down. You buy it? Well, there's a lot of things in, in that to unpack. I mean, I, I would say that I was I was um, a bit un, I was curious about one the decision that Paul made to take 75 basis points off the table, right. um, because I think in general he was trying to send a strong and if you will hawkish message that the Fed was committed to bringing inflation down. And we can talk about whether it's demand or supply related. As you said, they seem to focus very much on supply, um, supply problems, which then opens them up to criticism because everyone says, well, then what is the Fed doing? Because they can't control, you know, the supply problems. And so, so there's all, we can, we can get into that, but, but he was trying to send a message. He was hearkening back to Volcker, you know, we'll do what's necessary, even if it, if it means we we risk recession and then but then he turns around and, and acknowledging the uncertainty, but still says, but, you know, 75 is not something we're thinking about. And I don't know why he uh, you know, he kind of sort of needed to do that. Um, I will say with respect to inflation, the Fed is going to have a little bit of help here because on a year over year basis, the numbers are going to start to come down. You know, we've we're going to see this next week. We have the CPI coming out. We've seen a little bit of relief on the energy or you know some relief that we saw um, in May on the energy front will come through. So but the statistics, because we had such 
high numbers last year are going to look like year over year we're moving in the right direction. So that may buy him some time. I just look worried about looking ahead. And in 2023 or later this year, if you settle out and as good as you get is maybe, you know, somewhere just under four, like what do you do then? You know, when that benefit of the year over year numbers is not working in your favor, it's not as, you know, and you have to admit, you're still not comfortable. You're still not as you know, low as low as you want it to be. Then what are you going to do? And so that, I think, is going to be the problem they face down the road. You're still going to have monthly readings, though. I mean, I know the year-over-year basing stuff, but that's kind of, you know, statistical chicanery. I mean, really. It, no, you're 100% right. Although, again, optically for the public, it you know, which I think kind of looks at those annual inflation rates, mm. it will take a little bit of pressure off. So it's a, it's a pure optics play. I don't really see you're going to you're going to get much improvement on the underlying rate of inflation, and that's why you know I believe once those optics sort of washed out, the Fed is going to be left having to acknowledge that the inflation rate is not where they want it to be. Yeah, and um, David Kotak, uh, we had Steve Hankey on earlier. He's a well-known monetarist, very smart guy. Uh, he said that basically, in his view, the basic inflation rate was going to be 6% for a couple of years. And I think that if that is the case, or nearly the case, I mean, it's not 10, but it's not 2 either, which is their ultimate target, or so they say. 6% inflation is rough stuff, and that's going to force them into doing things much more aggressively and brings, I think, you know, you go from inflation to stagflation to recession. I mean, what what are the chances that you have that kind of difficult scenario? Well, we we, we have an aggregate demand shock, Larry. We have an aggregate supply shock. That's a double whammy that comes right on the heels of a similar two-year-ago pandemic double whammy back-to-back. Back. I was just sitting listening, thinking about the fact you and I met each other before you went to work for Ronald Reagan. And we were talking then about the late 70s, the very beginning of Volcker, mm. the inflation characteristics that I, I, we will admit to viewers, or at least I will, that's how long we know each other. Mm-hmm. This is not the 70s. This is not an Arthur Burns easing Fed. Mm. This is a dual whammy. A pandemic comes along once in a hundred years, and it's a shock of huge proportion. There's a great study done on that by the San Francisco Fed in a working paper in 2020 where they examined the economic shocks of pandemics, and they parallel wars. Mm. Similar, Spanish flu, World War One. So we're in the different construction than we're used to. And now we have the shooting war. So I'm not so sure we're going to get to six, eight, nine percent perpetual inflation. I think we could get some rollover. And I was flashing back in memory. I remember conversations with Michelle about housing, housing rolling over, worrying about mortgages. You know, look at where we are now. We're above 5% on a 30-year mortgage. Suddenly, the housing bubble may have a pin stuck into it. In fact, I 
It, it's a conversation that could cause rollover of this inflation scare. Used car prices starting to roll over. There's possibilities it won't be as big as the warning that we get from the inflationists. What are the chances? Well, we, let's take a break. We've got to take a break. We'll come back and talk about the outlook the potential for stagflation or the potential for recession, and then how high are interest rates going to go? The 10-year broke 3% uh, this week. It looks like it's up there permanently. Um, We can talk about that. And how high is the Fed's target rate going to have to go? Anyway, we're talking to David Kotak of Cumberland Advisors, Michelle Girard of NatWest Markets, and I'm Larry Kudlow. We'll be right back. Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. I'm here talking stocks in the economy with Michelle Girard, Managing Director, Co-Head Global Economics, NatWest Markets, and David Kotak, Chairman and Chief uh, Investment Officer of Cumberland Advisors. Michelle, a couple things. Um, There's a lot of talk about recession. Let's start with that. Do you see any recession? I think the risks have gone up. I would say they're, they're, you know, normally I think you always say there's, you know, 20, 20% or something. I mean, I think they're higher than that. It is in our base case, but I, I am watchful of it. Not so much this year as next year. And again, I just think it's, we, we do think inflation will be more persistent. I do think the Fed is going to have to raise rates more than, than people think. I, I don't think it's going to be a straight line. I think, you know, they'll move, they'll pause, they'll have to start, you know, start again. Uh, I, I, you know, I think right now the economy does have some underlying um, resilience. I, you know, I think the consumer still continues to, to be weathering the, the impact of higher food and energy prices in particular, uh, you know, well, but, but I just, I, I, I think we're going to lose, um, I think we're going to lose momentum because the Fed is going to have to, I, ultimately, I, I fear having waited so long, the only way that the Fed will be able to get inflation down to toward the 2% mark is to orchestrate, you know, a much sharper, uh, you know, turn down in demand. Mm. So the two-year uh, CPI break-evens, the TIPS break-evens, Closed at four fifteen. So yep. Michelle, uh, let's see, it was actually fell twenty one basis points, but it's four fifteen. So that would suggest if the Fed's going to conquer inflation, we're going to need a Fed funds rate in the next two years that would be I don't know above four fifteen. Call it five. I don't care. Whatever you want to call it. That's not in anybody's radar screen. No. It- no, it isn't. Um, at the moment, the market is pricing at a peak Fed funds rate of right around three and a quarter percent in the you know kind of the second quarter of next year. And so they do, you know, there is an expectation policy will move restrictive, but but ultimately that's you know I, I think that that isn't likely to to probably be sufficient. And, and you know, sort of given the expectations that we have as a as a Fed inflation settling out this year, core inflation settling out this year, um, finishing this year around four percent, and at the end of next year, even with the you know with the funds rate getting up to that level, we have inflation uh, ending near at three percent. So I, I just think the Fed is going to end up having to do having to do more. And, but again, I don't think it'll be a one-way line. I actually think in the near term, mm. markets are going to get more concerned about this growth story, about a growth slowdown, uh, and the Fed may well, you know, end up having to, you know, to pause at some point and then and then restart. It won't be a straight line. But I just I just don't think when you look at the the end state that 
I think people's expectations about what will probably be needed is too low, are too low. David Kotak, how does a stock market investor play this? You have to see the earnings. We're seeing them. And then it seems to me, Larry, you have to believe that the earnings growth rates will continue. And that's now in doubt for reasons Michelle just eloquently explained. My view is the fourth quarter of last year, the S&P 500 index delivered over $55 in earnings for the quarter. The original estimates before that quarter started to report were below 52. And as the earnings were delivered, market agents said, wait a minute, that's more than we expected. This first quarter, which is almost finished reporting, I think we have 80-some percent of the companies reported, is doing it again. We're probably 55, 56 S&P 500 earnings for the first quarter, and no one expected it. We have the earnings growth rate continuing. Hmm. We see the profit share. Now, there was a big threat. Long ago, you you talked about it, others talked about it, that we would have higher corporate taxes, we would raise the corporate tax rate. All those approaches in politics are non-starters. And so we pencil out an earnings trajectory that will continue to grow. And if the earnings trajectory continues to grow, let's say 225 this year, 235 next year, and I'm using mild numbers. Mm. And Michelle's trajectory on interest rates is four. Mine is in the threes, but terminal rates somewhere around four. The stock market is a bargain here. Mm. Everyone is scared. So when fear is driving the stock price, not the earnings momentum, stocks become very attractive. And we think that's an evolving situation. What about if you get, say, the 10-year note finished at 312, so it's up 19 basis points this week. Um, If that thing goes to three and a half or four, put it in that range, uh, what happens to multiples, David Kotak? Well, so let's use four. Let's use the higher number. Yeah. And say, okay, what's the whole yield curve look like at that point in time? The 10-year is four. Let's put the short-term rate at three or three and a quarter, a relatively flat curve, but no inversion. And then you say, how would I calculate the equity risk premium on that outlook? And you would say, well, okay, I'll take 18, 19 times. That's not so bad. In a trajectory that is post-double whammy, Aggregate supply shock, aggregate uh, demand shock twice in a row in two years. That's not a bad picture. Michelle Gerard, how high high the tenure? Well, you know, actually, Larry, we think you may be getting close to – to the top in the sense that it does feel like we keep saying peak hawkishness or concern about the Fed has been priced in. As I said, the market has priced in a lot of Fed tightening already, which is what has pushed us uh, across the curve to get yields uh, up above 3%. And there's a high end terminal rate. 
that's already been incorporated. And I do think that these growth concerns are going to mount. So so there is, a, I think, a likelihood that, that we may actually be kind of near as high as we're going to get for the for the time being and, and see some you know, a, a little bit like we saw after the, you know, after the meeting on Wednesday, some people willing to to begin to buy at these and nibble at these higher attractive levels over 3%, again, as people become concerned about the growth outlook. So I actually, our, our view is actually over the near term, at these levels, it might, you know, you might actually see yields move a bit lower. And then again, perhaps later in the year, um, you know, see a reversal. I guess the other thing I would I would mention too I think it's just worth pulling in. I do think if we think about globally the economic situation, I do think the other theme is a return to sort of U.S. exceptionalism. We may have issues, we may have growth concerns, but we are insulated to a much greater degree than than the U.K. than Europe in terms of the threats from the U, you know obviously the Ukraine invasion in terms of China, which has got you know doubling down on its COVID strategy. There's a lot of concern about slower growth in China. You know, Europe and the UK are much more uh, vulnerable to those developments. So I do think on a relative basis, while risk assets here may be more challenged, I do think the US is going to continue to look like a relatively attractive place. I think the dollar outlook is is, is positive. I think it's just worth mentioning that as well. Well, you got to hope the cavalry is coming. <laughs> I mean, the cavalry, if the cavalry comes, you're, you're both, you know, you, you're gonna, we're going to be okay. But if these folks, if the Green New Deal wins and high taxes win, now the good part is uh, we saved America and killed the bill. Biden doesn't want to take no for an answer, but he doesn't have the votes to do it. So we're going to take this all the way to the election. So if the cavalry comes, taxes stay low. We won't get the regulatory relief, but I think you've got a shot at it. But I, I think you're both underestimating. I mean, I think Hanky's right. 6% inflation for the next two years. Okay? I'm going to give you the last word, David Coates. 6% inflation for the next two years. There you go. Boom. I'll take I'll take the under the next time we <laughs> visit together. We'll, we'll celebrate history. Both of you be safe and careful. It's so nice to be back with both of you. Again. <laughs> That's great. The cavalry's coming. 6% inflation. All good. Michelle Gerard. thank you. David Kotak, thank you. Stock market investors, good luck, kids. <laughs> I'm Larry Kudlow. We're going to talk money and politics right after this with Liz Peake and Steve Moore. Please stick around. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. Join us during the week, Fox Business, 4 to 5 p.m. every day. You can live stream us here on the Internet, LarryKudlowShow.com. We're going to talk money and politics with Liz Peake, Fox News contributor, syndicated columnist, Steve Moore, FreedomWorks, and uh, Committee to Unleash Prosperity, and his latest book called GovZilla. Uh, kids, I want to begin with this bulletin. The great I'm, – I'm such an Italian government fan now. This is it. Italy has taken Putin's yacht, the Sherazad. Sher- the Sher- I can never pronounce it. They have taken his yacht. I have been calling for this for weeks. How does Vladimir Putin – how does Vladimir Putin, who's been a public servant, quote, unquote, for four decades – own a $700 million yacht? Well, let me refer to people of a certain age will remember this great Broadway hit, Fiorello. Go. Go. 
your witness. Mr. X, may we ask you a question? It's amazing, is it not? That the city pays just slightly less than 50 bucks a week, yet you've purchased a private yacht. I am positive your honor must be joking. Any working man can do what I have done. For a month or two, I simply gave up smoking. <laughs> and I put my extra pennies one by one into a little tin box. A little tin box. At a little tin key unlocked. All right, there you go. This is the best morning I've had in ages. We finally took Putin's yacht, all right, which he stole from the Russian people, and that's not all he stole. He quit smoking for a couple of months and put it all into a little tin box. So, Liz, peak, number one, I feel I feel vindicated. I wish it had been the United States, but it is not to be. But I'm going to love the Italian government. And he is a crook. He's a war criminal and a crook. He also may be very sick. So what do you think of this story? <laughs> well, it's obviously made your day, Larry, <laughs> and I think that's great. Uh, my, my view is, yeah, it's terrific that Italy's done this, and other countries have also confiscated the oligarchs' possessions. Why haven't we? That's yeah. really the question on yeah. my mind, because uh, we have seen stories about, oh, Biden talks a big game about we're going to take away their toys and we're going to get really uh, tough on these oligarchs and on Putin, but oh, we haven't done it yet. So, yes, Putin is incredibly corrupt. Uh, people in honest ways of life who are politicians don't end up with mega yachts, which this one is. It's really a mega yacht, by the way. Uh, and I've always thought the great things about these yachts, whether it was owned by Russians or Chinese or whoever, is that they're kind of floating castles. If things get tough, they can take to sea, they can sell them for, you know, billions of dollars or hundreds of millions anyway. Uh, turns out that's not the case. And bravo to Italy for showing us the way. Yeah, you know, Steve Moore, four, I think it's 435 feet. But Steve Forbes makes a good point. We, you know, sell, they took the yacht, now sell it. And whatever it's worth, $700 million, you know, give the money to the Ukraine to buy weapons. I mean, that's an important strategy. Yeah, look, I love that story, and it is sad that uh, Italy is now tougher on uh, on Russia than the United States of America. <laughs> That's pathetic. But um, the you know one of the things that always just irritated me to no end during the Trump presidency was this line by the media that Trump was in the hip pocket of Putin. Remember, I mean that mm-hmm. was their story for four years. And look, I've I've said this many times. I think I said it on your show. I I honestly believe that if Trump were still president. Uh, Russia would not have uh, invaded Ukraine. But the, the main point is, why is Biden so weak? I mean, why, why isn't he taking a stronger position? We can repel with the, with the aid of, of the NATO allies and the United States taking the lead. We can repel this invasion. Yes. But he's scared. He's scared. And, and I think we see that at every turn of the road. We were hesitant to start sending arms. If we knew early last fall or early, actually even by spring that there was a good chance that Putin was going to invade Ukraine, we should have been loading up the weapons into that country so that he would be scared to do it. But it was Biden who was frightened, who's, kept, who's constantly kind of taking one step back because we're afraid of angering Vladimir Putin. Yeah. That is really the truth. And the question is why? Is, 
is he really going to launch a nuclear weapon against the West, in which case Russia would be annihilated? Mm. And I really I cannot see uh, that we are going to constantly let this bully, admittedly a nuclear armed bully, basically dictate to the West what is going to happen in our futures. I mean, I think it's unconscionable. And unfortunately, we do not have a strong leader at the helm. And boy, do we need one right now. I mean, I think that's the key point on that. You know, when the tro- when the 150,000 troops or whatever were amassing on the border of eastern Ukraine, the Biden diplomacy was to say, if you know, if you go one step further, we're going to do this and this and this yeah. and we're going to impose terrible sanctions. What we should have been doing is, A, we should have put the sanctions on sooner, but B, we should have been reloading them militarily while those troops were there. We lost months of potential progress and rearming of Ukraine. Turns out we are um, teaching their troops. I mean, we are training their troops, which is a good thing. And I think we're lending some intelligence. I don't know if the tide is turning, but I just really couldn't resist the little tin box here. I mean, it just brought tears to my eyes. I saw it on the cell phone about an hour ago, and I started going crazy because... Well, because you two have been suffering through this with me uh, also. Um, Can I ask another some tricky stuff? Um, Steve Forbes, I'll start with you. In the Pennsylvania Senate primary race between Dr. Oz and David McCormick, a very interesting thing. You surely saw it this morning. Uh, President Trump is out there rallying for Oz. But at the same time, Mike Pompeo, this is the interesting part, publicly rallying for McCormick and taking some major league shots at Oz. Like, um, you know, McCormick served in the U.S. military and Oz served in the military, but it was the Turkish military. All right. Now, I have not seen this kind of confrontation between President Trump and any any of his former people, uh, for that matter. Uh, what do you make of this? I mean, this is Pompeo making a move very visibly uh, coming out against the president's guy. And um, this is a bitter primary. It'll be in uh, not this Tuesday, but the following Tuesday. Yeah, uh, it's, a, it's a very close race. and I've met both of them. And, and frankly, I'm kind of neutral on that race, Larry. I mean, I like both of them, actually. I think they're both they both have uh, real skills and talents. And the most important thing, obviously, is Republicans have to pick up that uh, governorship in, in, um, in, I mean, it's the Senate race because they also have a governorship as well. Uh, I just make one comment about what's going on politically in this race and so many others around the country. Um, Trump is on a roll right now. I mean, the, the win in Ohio by, mm-hmm. J, uh, by J.D. Vance, and I, I'm not a big J.D. Vance fan. I was kind of neutral in that race as well. But um, he is he is he is moving the needle <laughs> big time in these races. I'm in Nebraska right now. Uh, campaigning with a guy named Charles Herbster, mm-hmm. and he is going to win that race in Nebraska because Trump came in last week and did a big rally for him. So Trump is a major, major force in these Republican races around the country. By the way, on that point, uh, before I get to Liz, I, I just love that Carl Rove r- writes a column in the journal I guess on Thursday, saying Trump didn't really win big in Ohio. That was the stupidest column I ever saw. I mean, that was ridiculous. That race was really. That was a total toss-up race until Trump came in, and then and then and he said, "Oh, he only won. He only moved the needle by six or six points." Well, that was the six points that made the difference between winning and losing. And he had some other way. By the way, Trump. Uh, I didn't know this. Trump endorsed Mike Pence's brother, 
in Ohio for Congress, and he won. And then, of course, I didn't know that. yep, yep. And then also another one, Maxie Meyer, who we all love. Max Meyer's on President's staff. Uh, he was in the Outer Oval Office staff and other places. Maxie won his race, uh, his primary for Congress. But Liz P, come to you back. It just, I guess, it, he, as plain as I can, is uh, Mike Pompeo running for president? And is uh, Mike Pompeo basically saying he's going to run against Trump? Yeah, I, I thought this was a really interesting development. Mike Pompeo most certainly is running for president. He's mm-hmm. been making a lot of public appearances. He's on Twitter constantly. And and I think he's a very formidable uh, person. I wish he had run for a state office instead of putting his sights on the Oval Office, because I don't think he's a good presidential candidate. He's got absolutely no warm and fuzzy aspect. He's a brilliant guy, without a doubt, I think. Um, I thought his attack on Oz was very peculiar because uh, I really don't imagine that Dr. Oz is a Turkish asset, which was kind of the implication, <laughs> right? Yes. I mean, really, that's kind right. of what he said. Was, right. you know, he's, he's sort of subverting uh, American political position here for what? For the purpose of, of uh, enabling Turkish drive to Muslim state. I, I have no idea really what he's kind of um, assuming, but it was a hit. And, uh, it, you know, whether the voters are going to take much notice of that, I don't think so. But uh, I, I agree with Steve. I think both of the candidates in that race are really credible. And it's too bad, frankly, that they're both running for the same office because we, we need good candidates. And, uh, you know, it's too bad we can't spread them around better, you know. Well, I'm from McCormick. But I don't know anything about the Turkish army. I mean, I'm just, I don't know. I'll have to, I'll have to Google <laughs> well, up Turkish you know, army. I'm that. still into the Italian know. army. I mean, geez. <laughs> Somebody's going to come out and boost. Or yeah. maybe it was the Italian Navy. Whatever. <laughs> I, you know, Larry, I think most voters are where you are. They're, they're, you know, if, if Oz had ties to Russia or China, Ooh. okay, that would be a serious charge. There is no such charge. He has ties to Turkey. Yeah, well, he comes from there. I mean, you know, and he has a Turkish passport, by the way. That, too, I think, was very offensive to Mike Pompeo. I I thought this was actually beneath Mike Pompeo, and Mm, I'm a little surprised he went there. Yeah, well. Me, too. People don't realize that his last name, because everybody calls him Dr. Oz, but it's Oz, uh, is it Mohammed or something? What's his last name? Uh, Mohammed, I think it is. So, I mean, it was kind of a slur. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, uh, look, I happen to be from McCormick, but um, yeah. again, I think I, he's a good candidate. I think Oz is too. I've yeah, met him. I think he's a very, very smart. I think that the reason that there are some prominent Republicans backing him is number one, he's got good backing. Number two, he uh, has tremendous following in the black community. There's a feeling that uh, in that race, where you know Philadelphia voters are obviously going to loom large in other urban centers, that he can do much better with those voters than McCormick. And mm. I think that's maybe true. I'm going to Google well, up. Another big race, by the way, Larry, um, you know, because Trump has endorsed many uh, gubernatorial candidates, and this is primary season. We've got a bunch of races on Tuesday and in the weeks and months ahead. But the one I don't understand, and I just disagree with Trump on, is in Georgia, yep. where you've got mm-hmm. Kemp has been Kemp has been a very good governor. Mm-hmm. He's been a good governor. You know, he's done a lot of. We've rated him very highly, and uh, and by the way, I, uh, Purdue was a fantastic senator. You and I worked with him. Mm-hmm. He, he was a great senator, and and he got caught up in the in the whole Georgia situation, and it was a real shame that he lost. But. Uh, 
Kemp is going to win that race. I'm here to tell you, Kemp is going to win it. Mm-hmm. And and Trump said something the other day that really bothered me. He said something like, "Well, you know, maybe if if because he hates Kemp because of the, of the election issue and that he wouldn't back him on some of these, uh, you know, uh, challenging the election." But he was saying, "Well, maybe." People People shouldn't vote for Kemp if he's the nominee. And I'm like, really? Do we um, really want Stacey Abrams to be right. the next yeah. governor of Georgia? That was a mistake of two years ago when President Trump. This is kind of a metaphor for where Trump is and where he's going wrong, in my view, right now, is that he cannot move on beyond that 2020 exactly. election. And exactly. he absolutely has to. And if he torches the governor race in Georgia, he's done. I mean, I think just yeah, too many I, I people agree. are going to say, you know what? I'm over him, and I, I, I love the agenda. The man has really, uh, unfortunately, ruined his own reputation, and I think if he does that, he will. Well, i got to take a quick break. Uh, while we're in the break, I'm going to Google up Italian Navy. That's the key. <laughs> or Turkish Army. <laughs> I, I'm afraid to go to the Turkish <laughs> Army for what I'm going to find. Anyway, Liz Peek, Steve Moore, I'm Larry Kudlow. We'll be right back. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. I am here with Liz Peek, Fox Business, uh, Fox contributor and um, syndicated columnist. Her stuff, I love it. I sort of asked her on the show, Liz, where's your stuff play? She goes all over. She plays all over. But I'm fine with that. I like that a lot. And we have Steve Moore, Freedom Works, Committee to Unleash Prosperity. His latest book is Godzilla. Um, kids, the last thing I want to raise is, will the abortion issue, Roe v. Wade, rescued the Democrats in November? Which is going to be more important, Roe v. Wade or inflation, recession, stagflation, and so forth? I'll start with you, Steve Moore. Well, look, I mean, obviously it is the economy, but this is an issue that um, I'm very pro-life, as I think I know mm-hmm. you are, Larry. Yep. Uh, but I think Republicans need to under, need to figure out how to talk about this issue. Uh, I like what you've been saying a lot, Larry, on your show. You know, this is about the children. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's about babies. Mm-hmm. And, and mm-hmm. Uh, I think Republicans have been kind of off message. They keep saying that this isn't going to make abortion illegal, but actually in many states it will make abortion illegal. Um, and so that's not a very compelling argument, I think. I think we have to talk about babies and we have to talk about um, – you know, alternatives to abortion. And uh, I, look, I, I really defer to to Liz because she's a woman, but I, I'm nervous about it because, it, you know, the Democrats need a change of topic. And this is what they've been waiting for. What do you think, Liz? Well, I think that's exactly right. Democrats have absolutely nothing else they can talk about uh, with any kind of favorable margin or approval. So this is something that energizes their base, to be sure. Uh, I'm not, I, I'd say, I have a couple of thoughts here. One is because it was leaked, uh, it's a long time till November. Mm-hmm. In a funny way, if it had come out at the end of June, right. I almost think that would have been a worse problem for Republicans strictly talking politics now because Americans' attention span is fairly short and everyone would have had all that excitement and anger boiling over still in November. I think by November, this is not going to be as top of mind, uh, although there will be candidates raising money on it on both sides. So I'm not quite sure where that shakes out. Uh, I think, Larry, the way things are going now uh, is so catastrophic, and I, and I actually really mean that in terms of markets plunging, bond markets right. under pressure, 
uh, real wages plummeting at the worst rate in, I don't know, 40 years or something, inflation a real problem. And by the way, I'm looking at a lot of inflation data this morning. There's a lot of reasons to be very pessimistic that uh, price increases are going to moderate anytime soon. I do think that is more compelling come November than Roe v. Wade. Yeah, well, I, I totally agree. That's been, I've asked a lot of people about this, and I've looked at a lot of columns about this, and I haven't really seen a case where Roe v. Wade is going to um, bail out the Democrats. And, I, you know, I think the other point, though, I would say to both of you is, look, I, have, I respect um, the choice people. I, I respect that uh, women's rights and so forth. I always say, what about – the rights of the unborn. That's my principal issue. And I do want to save the babies. But Liz, I think we were talking about this on the show. I mean, in, abortion after the first trimester is increasingly unpopular. Yeah. And the Democrats still seem to have this position that was taken by Hillary in the famous exchange with Trump in the debate in 2016 you should, you know, you go right up to the bitter end, the last day, and you can have late term or partial birth abortion. I mean, I know some states are going to say yes. Some states are going to say no. I personally like the idea that the states and the voters will decide not to judge it. But, Liz, I, I just think that, you know, with sonograms and so forth, I, I don't think many people really want to abort after the first trimester. I, I think that's totally right. And most states, basically, the laws. And well, polling shows that that's exactly right, <clears throat> that voters are OK with abortion with restrictions. And the restrictions generally are speaking uh, have to do with viability outside the womb. And that, though it's changing, uh, certainly it, it is usually first trimester. And by the way, that is what almost all developed countries allow. They don't. As someone has been very brilliantly putting up a thing saying nine month abortion, which is what you can do, by the way, in New York. Mm. Yes, with some restrictions, but there are ways of getting around those. If you have the right doctor, et cetera, you can have a full term abortion in New York, which is allowed in, guess where, North Korea and China. Yep. So that we are not. I mean, do we really want to align with those countries which have absolutely no regard for human rights Mm -hmm. of any kind, including the unborn? I don't think so. I think most Americans are repulsed by the idea of someone aborting a third trimester baby. And and for good reason. It's a heinous uh, concept. And I so I I mean, what I think will happen is we will have this tremendous battle and states are going to go to the mat on, Mm -hmm. on this. And there are going to be restrictions imposed, some lesser, some more. My guess is it, there will be legal abortions in most states in that first trimester uh, uh, eventually. And hopefully hopefully, no states will allow full-term abortions or third trimester. It's a horrible concept. Uh, Steve Moore, uh, in your political travels, are you yet – I know this story just broke a week – or actually on last Monday. Um, are you encountering – in Republican primaries, for example, uh, any arguments here on Roe v. Wade? No, not really. Right. I mean, people, Liz is right. I mean, we have a catastrophic economy right now, and people are very afraid, Larry. People are afraid of what's happening in the 401k plans, and they're worried about their jobs. And so that that is what people are talking about. I've been on the road a lot lately. Um, I'll just, just say one more thing about this abortion issue. This is a pro-life country. It really is. Mm-hmm. You know, the support for pro-life has increased over the last 10 or 20 years. Um, and I think that's because of ultrasound and other things were in viability. 
as well. You know, when, when Roe versus Wade, when was that uh, ruled on? In the early 70s? 73. Uh, 73. Yeah. So, you know, the world's changed a lot in 50 years. Mm-hmm. You know, viability has, you know, uh, has uh, start, started much earlier um, periods of pregnancy. So um, I'll just leave it at that. You know, I, 63 let's, million. Let's, let's side with life. 63 yeah. million. And we did some work earlier in the show. We did some research on this. Um, it is African-American babies that got hit the hardest by far, oh, yep. African-American babies. And that is a tragedy as well. I'm going to leave it there. Liz Peek and Steve Moore, thank you. Everybody, thank you, Larry. We'll, thank you. I'm Larry Kudlow. We will be back next weekend. Please watch Fox Business. The name of the show is Kudlow, 4 to 5 p.m., Monday through Friday. And we'll be back right here next Saturday. <laughs> 